0: Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Today, before we start this story, I wanted to read an iTunes review that was just posted recently. It was so lovely, and I just, yeah, I gotta read it. So this is entitled Love to Lena. This is on the uh, Apple iTunes reviews. I'm a drug counselor who has recently become a passionate advocate for harm reduction. Through my years in this field, I always thought I'd say just the right thing to jolt someone actively using into wanting to change lena is a testament to what i've been leaning into for the past several years focused on harm reduction just to be there for someone to listen to empathize to accept to not judge to affirm it's not about what i want or think is best it's really just about unconditional love thanks for this episode Oh, thanks for that review. That was so sweet. Yeah, and thanks again to Lena. Lena, you rock if you're listening. Okay, let's get to today's story. This episode might be seen as a companion to Saj's story of healing trauma with psychedelics in season one. This is the story of Stella. She's a psychotherapist and her journey of healing childhood trauma and chronic depression with the help of both psilocybin and MDMA. Stella does a lovely job here of differentiating how these two medicines each addressed the interweaving strands of dissociation and emotional numbing, her plunge into alcoholism, the bouts of fear and rage, and the inescapable paralysis of waking up with depression every single morning. A note here, MDMA and psilocybin continue to be Schedule I illegal molecules, and presently the only way to do legal therapy with these medicines is to be part of a clinical trial. I really hope you enjoy this story. It was super meaningful for me to sit down with her and record this.
1: As an immigrant coming to America, I was an only child. My parents were really young. They had me when they were really young. And so they hadn't found themselves yet. And so a lot of the pain that... A lot of the pain that they didn't process kind of came on to me as transgenerational trauma with my dad it was more of this really harsh expectation of showing up in school doing so perfectly even like as a little child you know when I moved to this country I was four and a half and I just was expected to commit to schoolwork do reading do math you know as a little child I even remember this and when we moved to America, we left my grandparents, we left all of our support system, we came to California, and it was, you know, it was a pretty rocky transition, because we were pretty lonely, and there was no support, my dad was in grad school, and he was stressed with that, um, and so a lot of his tension and his anger came out on me, um, I... You know, it was sort of riding the waves of I would come home from school, I would be picked up by my dad, I would have to sit quietly in my room and do homework or work on something silently. So I was brought up to be very alone, um, have to take care of myself, you know, my parents... They never, there was no emotional comforting that didn't really exist, you know. After my dad would attack me, my mom would come in and kind of comfort me. But otherwise, I was sort of left to my own devices. I think it was cultural, you know. It's just a very hard culture. It was very disconnected, very much a lot of alcohol abuse, um just sort of like wearing black clothing. Everything was shut down. Everything was kind of brushed under the surface. And as a result, the population is very bitter, very, you know, talking a lot of crap about each other. And that's sort of the way that people relate is like, how much drama can you talk about shit Mm -hmm. in your family? I would like sit silently in my room. My dad would be working on his grad school um, in the other room. And I remember it being very important that I not make any noise. So I would just sit there silently and pretend to do homework. If he would walk by, I would kind of grab my homework from the table and pretend like I was doing it when in reality I was crafting and creating art pieces and things like that. So because I was so lonely, I also played with myself, all by myself. So I remember... Having a made-up family, I had a mom and dad, and I had two siblings in my mind. And those parents and those siblings, they were emotionally attuned with me. We would have conflicts. We would work out those conflicts all in my head.
0: <laughs> so it wasn't just positive. Yeah. Affected interactions. They had the full range of.
1: Absolutely. Mm. It was like a whole... It must have been years and years. I don't remember when they started to fade, But it must have been when we moved to America. So, like, around five, when my dad first attacked me, till probably, like, eight or nine, when, like, the creativity kind of... I don't know. I don't know if that's what it is. But eventually they did fade. But for a long time, maybe, like, two or three years, they supported me in my mind and heart. They had names. They had whole Mm. characters. Like,
2: Mm.
1: so... I think that's sort of the... When I think back on my childhood, like that really describes the loneliness because I was so alone that I literally created an imaginary family.
0: You didn't really have friends or go to other families' houses. So.
1: You know, I did gymnastics. So when I was probably like five and a half or six, I started doing gymnastics. My mom was the coach, and I had friends there. Um And that was a huge resource, you know, from like 6 to 12, I went to gymnastics every day. So even if there was chaos at home, I would come to gymnastics practice in the evening. Sometimes I'd be almost in tears. But then I would have a really hard workout and I'd be around friends and that would just discharge that trauma. Mm. And I would come home and I would always be more regulated Um, I was able to sleep. I did have nightmares. I did wet the bed quite often up until probably, I think the last time was when I was 10, so pretty late into childhood. Mm
0: -hmm. So it sounds like your family, you were islands. Yeah. It was the island of your dad and of you and your mom and Mm -hmm. nobody's really taking care of each other or noticing each other.
1: Yeah. My dad and mom did not get along. Um, I just, I don't know that... I always felt that, you know, and yeah, I mean, I would get affection and attention after an attack. My mom would kind of hold me and take care of me, but I don't think it was until later that I realized, like, why didn't my mom stop that from happening, you know, just that curiosity of, I mean, there was a few times when I remember her, like, trying to fight him and be like, what are you doing, you know, like, stop that, like, I remember her kind of in the background, but he didn't listen. And most of the time, he was honestly my primary caretaker. He would, my mom would be at work, and he would pick me up from school and feed me lunch and take care of me. Mm. And then,
0: could he be loving and kind to you?
1: (sighs) You know, like not really. That comes to mind. It Mm. was really disconnected. Like he. He had my basic needs met, I guess. You know, but in terms of like being loving, that doesn't mm. ring a bell. Mm-hmm. grad school continued for him he would get drunk on the weekends like i remember just several horrible memories where he would just i knew that he drank a bottle of wine and i knew that it was like walking on eggshells that he was gonna come after me at any point
0: point. why you do you remember back in your little girl mind like what why was your dad coming after you it's so terrible to you
1: I mean the first time I got attacked it was I was like running around when we were on a walk in the evening and I was like oh you can't hurt me like I'm wild I'm free like just kind of dancing and twirling and being my wild self and he was like oh really like let me show you it was sort of like this like power over me Mm. that he had to sort of assert. And I have always been kind of a free spirit. I've always been really smart. I've always been really emotional. And, you know, I think it threatened something in him that he wasn't able to tap into himself, like his own gentleness and his own vulnerability. And because I was such an emotional and expressive child, perhaps it, he wasn't able to digest that.
0: Mm. So instead of being able to celebrate your free-spiritedness and your energy and your big spark, he almost had to like go totally alpha on you and just dominate you and show that, no, he was the boss. Yeah, mm.
1: that's what it seems like, yeah. yeah.
0: Was he abusive to your mother as well?
1: Only verbally. Mm. You know, I had... When I was in... I went to one grad school and then I dropped out and there was a psychoanalyst there and he had um, proposed that perhaps my dad was attracted to me and he was fighting against that attraction. You know, as I was a teenager and started going through puberty, I could, I could feel some sexual energy kind of being put towards me. I never got sexually abused. It was mostly just emotional and physical, but there was always like this sexual energy that was in my direction, which was really uncomfortable So that's possibly true, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to say why me.
0: Yeah. So you went back sort of oscillating between states of deep loneliness and fear and threat and um, explosive violence and more fear and loneliness and just cycling through those.
1: Yeah, like I would sit... You know, I would get attacked um, and then I would sit in the corner of my room. Sometimes eventually I made like a space in my closet where I like put up little pictures and I could just like bundle up and like hide there basically. But a lot of memories are like sitting behind the door in the corner because in my culture, it's like, oh, go sit in the corner and think about what you've done. Mm. And so that was always, you know the discipline and so i would be sitting in the corner and i remember tightening every muscle in my body and just like wanting to disappear and then in the background my dad is just like violently getting sick from drinking so much and that's just a you know that was a repeated memory over and over
0: so how did this start to play out in your development and your relationships you know we start with this image of you as a little girl in your room and with your family imaginary family and now you're moving into puberty and adolescence and what what does that look like for you in terms of your ability to function in the world and go to school and have friendships and be a teenager
1: I was really insecure, you know, when I was 12, we moved uh, across the country because my dad got a job at a university, and so at that point, you know, I was 12 years old, and I had left whatever friends I had in California, so um, coming into middle school in a new place where it wasn't diverse, you know, my culture was not in the majority in any way, Um I got bullied because I was different. I had a different language. I dressed differently. Um, And yeah, it was just, I was really insecure. I remember the first time like I had a group of girlfriends and the one girl got mad at me because I was talking behind her back. And since English is my second language, I didn't even know what that meant. (laughs) I was like, what do you mean talking behind my back and behind your back? And She was like, oh, you were talking to someone else about me behind my back. And I was like, what? You know, I was almost like innocent, kind of not expecting this cruelty from people, even though, you know, like you would think differently from my childhood, but still kind of maintaining that like, you know, like good heartedness. Um, And yeah, it was just kind of tumultuous. It was hard for me to trust men um, in relationships. I did get into my first relationship when I was 15 That was actually surprisingly pretty stable. Uh, Once drugs and alcohol started to enter the picture, my relationships became significantly more tumultuous and abusive and ungrounded. It wasn't until I was probably 18 and I was throwing up because I was so drunk in a restaurant. And I remember even like looking up almost like at God or who knows what and being like, whoa, like, how did this happen that I am? The person that I hate. When I was probably like 14 or 15, I started to kind of attribute the abuse to like having a story to the abuse. I was like, oh wow, I was abused. My relationship with my family is not healthy. Um, and that's when I became really rageful and I just hated my parents. I hated my dad, especially. I kind of idolized my mom at that time. But even still, I just wanted to plow them over. I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. I had my first boyfriend and he had a car, and I was like, just get me out of here. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even know how much I actually even liked that boy because I was just, get me away from my family.
0: Mm-hmm. So that was your strategy flee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not yeah. fight. You couldn't win a fight against him. No. You, you had to flee. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you spend a lot of those years in kind of a dissociative numbing?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I was completely dissociated. You know, I think school and middle school doesn't really lend itself to any other way. Like, I would just sit at my desk and just missed all of middle school and high school because I was just asleep, you know? Luckily, I I had some teachers who kind of, like, brought me out of my shell, like my art teacher and my photography teacher. They saw something in me. They saw that, like, I had a real, really, like, unique vision, um... And in art and science and um, photography, I really thrived. But in other classes, I just learned how to dissociate and disconnect from my body Mm. and just kind of get by. Mm -hmm.
0: I wonder if back then you thought, if I get away from home, things will be all right. Like, I just need to escape my family, and then I'll be safe, I'll be fine, then I can live my life.
1: Yeah, definitely. I was so excited to go to college.
0: But that transition, while it got you away from some pain, you still carried a lot with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that alcohol, the drinking really brought up that rage in a way that it was just unmanageable. It was so wild. And when it first started, I didn't even know kind of like the root cause of it. Like I didn't attribute that to like my abuse i would just go insane you know i would drink and i would hit my boyfriends i would scream i was just uncontrollable completely feral and wild um at one point my friend had to call my mom to come and get me it was like 3 a.m and i was like hitting her and she's like trying to put me in the car and it was just yeah really scary mm. when i was sober i could like at mask it enough that I could get through you know classes and work and life and stuff but the alcohol just really brought out that underlying rage that was seeping through every part of me Mm -hmm. but still you know it's like I wanted this like power over men power over relationships like I I loved men and I hated them I wanted to like almost like wrap them in and then just like bring them down you know I had this guy who I was really in love with and we had an abusive relationship both ways he would abuse me and I would abuse him Um, and I realized that you know what am I doing with this person who I genuinely do love what is drawing me towards him it was really confusing and I knew it was related to my dad somehow and at that time I think I was 19 and I brought myself into therapy and found myself a therapist and I told her, I was like, you know, I'm finding myself in the same position as as my dad, and I know it's connected, but I don't know how to unwind it, and I don't know what to do, but I know that I'm very angry at my dad, and it makes me angry at every man,
2: Mm.
1: and it almost, like, I would act in a way that would elicit abuse, I would, you know, like just be push buttons and push buttons and push them until they would snap and be like, oh, see, I told you I wasn't worthy. Like, I told you I deserved this.
0: And then was that about the same time you had your first experience with psilocybin?
1: Yeah, I think it was a little bit after. Um, I was actually with that boyfriend that I had just talked about, the abusive one. And we took mushrooms together with me and him and three of our mutual friends. And I had a really bad trip. I kind of, I felt like I was stuck. I kept hallucinating that my mom and the police were coming in and that they were going to arrest me for doing drugs because in my culture, drugs are really, really bad and seen as something just the worst thing you can do. I remember just like kind of bending over my knees and holding myself in a similar way that I would held myself like in my childhood after trauma. And I was just pouring sweat, I remember touching my shirt, and it was wet. And the mushrooms, you know, kind of kicked my ass in a lot of ways I kept wanting it to stop and they kept just getting more and more intense but also it was a really cool experience because I had a visual of my unconscious mind and Mm -hmm. there were characters in it that I had never kind of tuned into which at that time I wasn't able to appreciate that but looking back on it now I can Mm -hmm. and kind of that space in the unconscious mind where there are characters that say different things and like guide us in different ways
0: do you remember anything about those characters
1: um one of them was definitely my grandpa who continues to show up in my um journeys
0: Mm -hmm. so that was a maybe a comforting part of a really hard scary painful trip
1: yeah I remember looking at my fingers and I was like, oh, my God, we're all aliens. Like, this is so alien. The phone is so alien. (laughs) Everything is alien. Mm. And I got, you know, I don't remember if this was exactly what was said in the mushroom, but they said something like, you know, you can't deny your heritage because up until that point, I had pretended that I was American. I kind of denied my immigrant history and my soul, basically. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh. You don't do that. Like this is mm. too. This is too big of your, too big of a part of you, to pretend and lie that it's not.
0: Mm-hmm. Do, do you remember that feeling like a, like a relief or like a, oh no I have to do this? <laughs> it, it was an oh no
1: because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all of my friends up until that point thought I was born in California because that's what the story that I had created mm. when I moved across the country and just decide like, because I was so bullied for it, I was like, Oh, I'm just going to pretend like this isn't me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That was the beginning of -hmm. an unfolding for sure. Mm -hmm. I remember looking into my eyes after I was down from the experience and I was like, wow, thank God I made it through that, you Mm -hmm. know, almost like a, I flipped a page on my life Mm -hmm. that I could try again, write a different story. I started meditating, so I did an art of living course. I joined my mom in yoga pretty regularly, like twice or three times a week. And I just started taking a little bit better care of myself. I was still drinking regularly, and then I would come to yoga and just like pour sweat. And my yoga teacher expressed concern because she was like, you know, this is pretty unusual. What's going on? I'm sure she could smell the alcohol coming out of me. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I wasn't quite ready to stop numbing myself.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm constantly trying to get people to to take better care of themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I just love this idea that you went through this really painful portal. And part of the result was you coming out saying, I need to meditate. I need to go to yoga. Even if you're sweating alcohol bullets during it, you're you're still going.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it was like this appreciation of life that it's the sacred gift that we only have this moment and this body. And up until that point I was resentful of this life and this body. And after looking into my eyes after that experience, I kind of deepened into that appreciation of life is magic. And I really wanted to know myself better. I wanted to I wanted to grow. I wanted to have awareness. I wanted to live in a place that felt safe. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the only way through to that was to go through my body and to, you know, explore what was going on in my mind. Mm-hmm.
0: And then at twenty three, you had another, perhaps even more, um, earth shattering kind of experience that reached deep inside of you.
1: At twenty three, I had I had already had like a really strong meditation and yoga practice. I was doing that pretty much daily. I had done retreats with meditation. I was a pretty strong meditator, but still, you know, acting out of my unconscious, still emotionally lashing out at relationships and things like that but when I was 23 I had my best friends and I took three and a half grams of psilocybin and I had what I now call my spiritual awakening experience basically what came up first was this incredible insecurity that you know like I had to take care of my friends and I had to like cater to them and were they okay and then it just the insecurity almost got like wiped out and I had to lay down and I got taken into another realm and in that realm you know it was the mushrooms asked me they were like you know why are you taking a depressant every day when you're already predisposed to depression and about the alcohol and I had never thought of it like that you know I didn't know I was predisposed to depression I didn't know that like alcohol was a depressant that was actually fueling this part of me um and then what happened next was that the mushrooms actually like turned on every energy center in my body like I remember it coming from my root chakra and just these bursts of energy moving up through my body like opening my reproductive organs opening my belly opening my heart opening my um, throat opening my mouth every part of me started opening and it was the most pleasurable experience ever basically like I had never felt so much life force coursing through my body and then they said to me the mushrooms they're like see life already feels good you don't need anything. You don't need alcohol. You don't need weed. You don't need any drugs. Life already feels good. What have you been doing trying to like get to feeling good through all of these avenues outside of yourself? I saw myself in a cocoon and the cocoon was like glittery and it was pulsating. And I got the message that I'm like being reborn. And then I started flying around and looking at these worlds that I had never seen before but were familiar so maybe in dreams maybe in before i enter this world i don't know but they were worlds that were based on love and that was the message that i got and then i they also said to me you know death is just a transition let go and so the message i got was that oh we're here to build these worlds based on love on this planet on this earth
0: It's like you totally came back to life, like you totally came online. I was just picturing as you described your chakras, it's like, um, start the system up, start the system, the system, almost like I was picturing a, like a Saturn V rocket, like with everything starting to light up and you've just been dead inside for so long.
1: Yeah, and I had this flash of this, like, painting that then I, like, put into reality, and I have it still in my house, and it was just, it came straight from the mushroom land, like, I don't even know if I can take credit for it, because it just came through me, it flashed into my memory, or into my mind when I was tripping, and then it just came through me in the next, like, couple months, and I made it into physical reality. Mm It was just unbelievable.
0: And was this largely solo? I mean, were your friends kind of in their own journeys or were were they supporting you through this or checking in with you or was this largely you doing your own deep psyche dive?
1: So, yeah, I was in my bed um, and I kind of, I would like yell out to my friends who were in the living room. Occasionally I'd ask my friend, you know, am I God yet? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Ten minutes. Every, yeah, every ten minutes I would check in. It was pretty funny. (laughs) And then at one point I remember crawling all over the floor and just like going and cuddling up on my friend. And that felt really nice. It was really safe, Mm -hmm. much safer than my first experience. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, it sounds like you entered it. <clears throat> well, one, you'd entered it with a few years of spiritual and somatic practice with yoga and meditation. And um, you're in a very different place at 23 than you were at 19 in terms of being able to utilize the gifts of that.
1: Absolutely, Yeah. yeah. that i i was working at a bar so of course i went to have my drink after work one day and i literally i got hung over after one sip i couldn't even smell the alcohol i would immediately get a headache so something with the psilocybin happened that made my body no longer compatible with alcohol as if it had said okay you've done it like this is it this is the max capacity like we cannot process any more alcohol Probably physically because my liver was probably not in great shape, and just emotionally, I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, they told me that alcohol was pretty much the opposite of life and soul, and so it just was no longer an option for me.
0: Mm. I mean, that is fascinating because it's not in your description. It's not that the psilocybin experience took away your know, desire to drink, or you saying, "Okay, I don't need to self-medicate my trauma," or this is making me more depressed. It's that physiologically metabolically you you couldn't drink right like something fundamental shifted
1: yeah i still don't know what it was magic like you know we can study psilocybin there's lots of studies happening but that is magic
0: that is magic (laughs) from my perspective yeah wow and then i'm imagining that could open up a space for all sorts of things i mean once you take alcohol off the table and everything that engendered, including the rage and the hangovers and just taking up so much time and wrecking relationships. And, um, now you've got a whole space opened up.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Shortly after that, I met my husband, um, just out of fate, you know, he delivered a sandwich to my house and we started hanging out. And then a couple months after that, we got together and we journeyed quite a lot together. We did LSD, we did mushrooms, we really explored our own consciousness and grew a lot together.
0: This session at 23 seemingly healed the alcohol issue, but it didn't, it didn't heal the depression. It, it didn't heal the trauma necessarily. You know, it took a really poisonous thing off the table. Mm -hmm. and sort of rebooted you and brought you back to life. But then you were vividly alive and aware and joyful in some ways, but still depressed and traumatized.
1: Yeah, yeah, I still... You know, I still witness, like, those toxic patterns come up in my relationship with my husband. I would get really, really jealous. I would get really emotionally reactive. I would lash out. You know, I wasn't physically abusive anymore, but I was definitely still emotionally abusive, really manipulative. Um, yeah, like, still those shadow parts were maybe not driving the bus anymore, but definitely made their presence known frequently. mm So maybe a month or two after the 23 psilocybin experience, I went to a festival and my husband gave me two tabs of LSD and that was another really powerful experience where um, I really just kind of fell into the center of the earth is the only way I can describe it. I started seeing like the life force in every blade of grass and every tree and every person I saw, like, the spinning ring of fire. I saw how everything was connected. Everything was all one. I remember, you know, thinking that the hippies had it figured out all along. <laughs> like They always knew. <laughs> and um, after that experience, I felt really, like, almost, like, seen by the universe and, like, looked after by source or God. I call it God. But it's not a Christian God. It's just the universe, the energy. And after that, I came out of it sort of like, wow, like I'm this depressed and I'm so lucky. How are other people doing in life and in the world when I am, you know, I am this lucky and I am this depressed. So that really kind of awakened a calling in me to help others. And I had a- already studied psychology. I had been on this path, but that was, you know, that was the catalyst for me pursuing a master's in counseling.
0: It's so fascinating because it's like you finally woke up and discovered the wonder and beauty and just amazingness of the world yet still felt this terrible weight. And that's what's made you say, okay, something's not right. Yeah. Yeah, I need, mm-hmm. I need to go on and do a journey, not just for yourself, but a healing journey for others.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I felt really alone. You know, after that LSD experience, I had uh, gone to my chiropractor and I got an adjustment maybe a few days after that. And I started like to have hives all over my body, starting at my base chakra, moving up every single chakra. And then the hives ended up spreading all over my body. And I had no idea what was going on. My I called my chiropractor and he had no idea. You know, when the hives started, I had the realization that my dad had done his best. And so what I how I conceptualized it was that you know my cells were actually releasing all of this toxicity that i had been holding for 23 years of my life and with the realization that my dad did his best like all that pain all of that hurt that was the best that he could do with his level of consciousness mm-hmm. and that was really a huge relief and insight for me because it did kind of you know propel me on my journey and also just that awareness that You know, he had done his best and I was so alone. Like, my chiropractor didn't know what was happening. My yoga teacher didn't know what was happening. I got a book on Kundalini and that was the first time that I realized, wow, maybe this is what's happening. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm having a spiritual awakening Mm -hmm. and this is actually something that does happen. And in the rural part where I lived, it was just such an unheard of thing. You know, what is spiritual awakening? And Mm so it almost felt like, a mission I was like I have to help others I have to support others on their awakening journey mm-hmm. I still you know at that point I had taken a few years and I just kind of stopped talking to him and cut him out and after that I still didn't talk to him very much but my heart started to soften I started to understand more you know I started to have more compassion for not the, the abuse that I went through, but just what they had gone through and just the lack of awareness and the transgenerational trauma that, you know, it is their responsibility to heal too, but they weren't able to. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I came to grad school, you know, and I was <laughs> from this mindset of like, oh, I'm already enlightened. You know, even with all these shadow things kind of driving my life. I was like, but I'm already enlightened, you know. What are, what are you going to teach me? Um, <laughs> and then in grad school they introduced the idea of like shadow work. And I was like, what do you mean shadow work? Like I'm already enlightened.
0: <laughs> yeah, can you describe that? I think some listeners will know what that is. I think a lot will not. Yeah. Shadow what work? is shadow work?
1: Yeah, so it's the part of us that we sort of shove to our unconscious as a kid, you know, we We come into the world with different characteristics and different parts of ourselves, and depending on what our parents and the society approve of, we learn to only present those parts, and any other part that's kind of deemed too much, too emotional, too big, too loud, whatever, any parts like that get shoved into our unconscious, and those parts end up kind of like driving our emotional behaviors. And so when we when we notice that we get hijacked and we don't even know why, like we're triggered and we hate this person, but we can't even put our finger on why, a lot of times they're triggering kind of our shadow aspects. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was a lot of just like kind of being manipulative in terms of negative stuff, like being mean, being judgmental. In terms of positive stuff, it was like my bigness, my my big emotion, how funny I am, how quirky I am, like moving around and like wiggling and dancing and kind of stuff like that. There was just too much for my family. So when I went to um, grad school, I started to reintegrate some of those pieces. And when I was you know, As part of grad school, you have to go to regular therapy, and so I was doing somatic experiencing. I was doing a lot of release in my body. I would be wrecked for days after sessions, but then I was still waking up depressed every day. Um, it would still take me to like 2 or 3 p.m. to connect with life and want to be here.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it seems like if you were going to create a laboratory for a depressed human, it would be something like you grew up in, mm-hmm. isolation shame secrecy no talking yeah be quiet isolate Mm -hmm. um and with periodic bouts of violence i mean just that seems like a complete it would be shocking if you didn't have significant depression
1: right yeah i just couldn't connect with life because it wasn't safe Mm -hmm. and then as a result i kept manifesting that reality over and over in different relationships (laughs) Mm-hmm.
0: How did the MDMA work start for you and, and what kind of things did that catalyze?
1: So I was seeing my therapist probably like two years and after that I, was, I had always been following the MDMA trials. I went to psychedemia in 2012 so I was familiar with the research and I had asked her um, if she knew anyone who could connect me with an underground therapist because I wanted to try this and I also wanted to learn how to do it. And yeah, so she connected me with a guy who works underground and I met with him and I started my first train or not training, sorry, uh, my first session with him. And the first session I was really, really terrified. I remember just like sitting there and like shaking, even though he's very kind, he's very loving, he's very open and welcoming, but he was a man. And so initially I was just like, there's no way like I hate this dude immediately He's going to rape me. This is not safe. What am I doing? You know, but I was so desperate because I was so depressed and I just wanted to feel better because I was working so hard Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I didn't understand why I wasn't having any relief from these regular therapies. And so after, you know, my first session with him was a lot of fear. I remember also pouring sweat just like pouring out all that adrenaline and cortisol out of my cells um, asking him you know are you gonna rape me am I safe like what am I doing here and then like slowly as he kept showing up for me and he kept being present and he wasn't kind of shutting down he was allowing every part of me uh, I started to access that like little girl again And she started to play, and she started to be wild, and her in this first session, Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mm -hmm. her emotion wasn't too much for this guy; like she wasn't too much. He just like kept holding space for me, and he wasn't turned off by any part of it. And for the first time in my life, I felt safe inside my body and in the presence of another person. Mm
0: -hmm. It's so fortunate that you had such an excellent ethical person because you know as you know in the maps trials they have a male and female therapist to, well for a lot of reasons mm-hmm. one for transference reasons and two for safety and so many people have been abused yeah by men and you, know, you had the really good fortune to have a underground therapist who was super ethical and safe
1: yeah and it really did like it brought me back into my body in a way that I had never experienced in my life. Like even from that mushroom experience where like the energy kind of flowed up through me, the MDMA was like an embodied experience. I was finally home. Mm -hmm. I felt safe. I could sleep again. I, the nightmare started fading. Um, I wasn't as jumpy and like, you know, hostile. Like I could just settle in. I started to recognize my triggers before they kind of spun me out into you know self-sabotage like I could recognize oh I'm being triggered because my husband looked at me this funny way and instead of like lashing out and trying to bring him down I could say hey like that was actually really hurtful like what did you mean by that because I interpreted it like this
0: Mm -hmm. how would you explain to listeners who don't have MDMA experience what happened in your body mind and spirit so you go into the session thinking this guy's going to rape me, I'm in terrible danger. And part of your brain's thinking, okay, I, I have no other options. I, I have to do something. And and you come out of it, as you say, really changed and um, with an open heart and a whole different level of fear. Like, what can, is there? A, I know it's often very hard to put these into words, but what happened in your body and your spirit
1: so basically the way that he works was you know we i think we started with my jaw and he kind of he brought my attention to the fact that my jaw was extremely tight because i was just holding and like scared and then he he had me kind of like massage my jaw and start to work on it and as i started to work on it like all these things that i had never said before started to come out and It was like, you know, anger at my father, um, just like rage at the society and like how we're destroying the planet. Like all these things that I kind of had choked down and like not shared fully were allowed to be shared. And so then as I was working on my jaw, it was like extremely painful. Like I'd be screaming at some points because I was just like, oh, my God, like I didn't even realize how much pain I was storing there. Um, But the cool thing about that is that then when I went back into my life and I had jaw pain, I would, it was no longer unconscious because before the MDMA, it was all unconscious. And so I'd be just tightening and tightening and tightening. And I just didn't even notice it until I had that first MDMA experience. And then once I started to get awareness of like, oh, when I don't express myself or when I'm judgmental or when I'm you know, caught in a loop where I don't feel like I can express myself because I'm ashamed, my jaw really hurts. And so I can stop that loop from happening in the day to day and like either bring awareness to my jaw, give it a little massage or like, express myself like, give myself permission to let go of that shame and move through whatever I need to move through. So just giving me that awareness of oh, like this unconscious pattern of my jaw hurting is actually just like an emotional hiding that's kind of rooted in shame. I do remember like as I was processing trauma, like in MDMA and with my regular therapist, like there was always a lot of activation around my jaw because that's like where I would tighten to sort of protect myself. And I would tighten it so much when my dad would attack me and I was just like, tighten my jaw and just like whisper like horrible things so yeah it was definitely trauma related
0: Mm -hmm. was there any touch in this first session
1: yes yeah so and then he asked you know permission to like touch different parts of my bodies, like different parts of my body excuse me like my hips really were sore and tender and my calves also were and he kind of informed me that that was where we store fear and pain and a lot of like emotional trauma was in our hips. And so as he was kind of like, I mean, I still had my clothes on and everything, but he was kind of digging his elbow into my hips and I was just like screaming and wailing and crying and like I had no idea. In the similar way to my jaw, I had no idea how much I was storing mm. in my hips. And how he described it to me was that literally we're like, releasing the hips and allowing serotonin and oxytocin to enter into these places where typically we would just like tuck away all of our emotional pain. Mm-hmm. And just bringing awareness to it, bringing touch to it, bringing um yeah, bringing more awareness to the fact that like wow, how much do you store in your hips and mm-hmm. after that point I really made it like it, I almost didn't have a choice because I would have to work my hips out almost daily from like the, you know, learning how to be a therapist and like picking up other people's garbage, picking up my own garbage. I would just incorporated more stretching into my hips and just more care for them. Mm-hmm. You know, he built that trust and I'm sure the MDMA helped, but he was just so solid and so loving that I was able to release into that. And at that point, I had nothing else to lose and I was like, all right, like, this is what I'm here. This is what I'm paying for. I might as well go all in. And at that point, it was probably like two or three hours in, I felt safe enough to let him touch me. Mm-hmm.
0: What did the benefits in the days and weeks after that session look like?
1: Life-changing. Yeah, it was like the depression disappeared. I was able to wake up in the morning, and I used my life force energy to like create and engage and connect with people I love. I remember walking around and just looking at the plants and the trees and feeling how alive they were and how alive I was, and we were all in connection together and... You know, not that I don't suffer with, like, moments of depression anymore, but after that first experience, it really, like, cleared out the field as if I could start over fresh.
0: Mm. I want to read something, Stella, that you wrote and emailed me before we met today, and I just thought this was so beautiful and wise. I had asked you a number of questions to think about, and one of them was, what are the key therapeutic elements in an MDMA session, and are they different with psilocybin? I just think this is so powerful you said i think for mdma it is all about rebuilding trust and reparenting it's very relational people want to be seen in their truth they are unafraid to be themselves when the shame and fear is stripped away they are unafraid to dream the biggest dream for themselves it is who we all are at the core of ourselves if we never had any limitations this feeling of grounding back in the body and coming home to oneself is alone, extremely healing. Yeah. The guide is there reminding the person of their greatest selves and loving all the parts that come up to defend the pain or convince them otherwise. And then this is about psilocybin. You said psilocybin is an experience of the great divine consciousness that runs through all things at lower doses. It can give insight and work similarly to MDMA, but it quickly reaches far deeper and more profound levels of the psyche and consciousness psilocybin proves the ego wrong and humbles us to bow down before the great unknown it forces us to listen to the calls and our bodies and the songs of our intuition it teaches us that there is no more important thing other than to live this life every moment to the fullest
2: who wrote that <laughs>
0: i love that it's so beautiful yeah
1: thank you yeah